Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. That's ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. We praise thee, O Lord, because thou art good and gracious. Grant, therefore, that while we persevere in thy praise, thou mayest call us away from the allurements of the world and win us to the fellowship of the perfect. Wherefore, we say glory be to the Father, who hath given this name of Lord to him that took on the nature of man. Glory be to the Son, ruling supremely in both his natures, divine and human. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the consubstantial sweetness and goodness of Father and Son, whereby the good Lord and his sweet name is proclaimed in the Psalms, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, this morning we continue to work our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we are at question four, and we're uh, camping out here because this is a very uh, dense question. So let me uh, read this question and answer for us. It says, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Last week we said the first and most important rule of theology is never make God into a creature. Never make God into a creature. And this morning I want to take a step back and make sure we understand what we are doing when we say anything about God. And so I want to answer uh, this question. What does it mean to predicate something about the one divine essence? Uh, That's what this whole catechism is doing. So uh, consider what is about to happen, a a crash course in scholastic theology. So what does it mean to predicate? Uh, This is a grammatical term. Uh, To predicate just means to say something about someone, to make an affirmation or an assertion about a particular subject. So in the sentence, Bob is strong, who's the subject? Bob. Is is the verb. Okay, that's, that's the one people forget. Is is the verb. And strong is the name or the noun that we are predicating of Bob. In the sentence, Betty is kind, Betty is the subject, and kind is what we are predicating about Betty. Now, when it comes to God, we have to be 
extremely careful how we say things about him. He is God, after all. And where most people trip up is in misunderstanding what Scripture is doing when it predicates various names about God. So to give you just one example, uh, in Psalm 18 it says, God is a rock, and God is a strong tower. Here, rock and strong tower are being predicated of God. And then the work of the Christian is to understand what Scripture means by predicating rock and strong tower of God. In what way is God a rock? In what way is God a strong tower? In theological terms, this is asking about what we call the mode of predication. Mode of predication. Uh, To borrow the words of a former president, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. (laughs) The... (laughs) The, the truth is that is can be said in many modes, in many ways. We could say God is a rock and mean that God is a literal rock in the sky. Or we could say God is a rock and mean it symbolically as a sign of his strength and power and immovability. In both instances, we say the same words, God is a rock, but only one of those statements is actually true. It all comes down to your mode of predication. What do you mean when you say God is a rock? What does God mean when God says that God is a rock? Whenever we say anything about God, we have to do so in harmony with what the rest of Scripture says about him. And as we saw last week, Jesus tells us that God is a spirit. He is immaterial. He is non-physical. God has no body. And therefore, under pressure from that truth, we are forced to change our mode of predication the way that we say God is a rock. We change from a literal mode of predication to a symbolic or metaphorical mode. This is crucial to understand when we get to the much more difficult names in the catechism, as we will, like infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And that is what we will take up next week. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. These are the words of God. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost." And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son, 
in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this gospel, this written testimony of your truth. We ask that you would quicken these words to our hearts, that you might inhabit the praises of your people for all time. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, last Sunday we saw that Mark's gospel begins in the wilderness, in the wilderness. The wilderness is the place where God prepares people for conquest. It was where God trained Moses before leading the Exodus. It was where he trained Joshua before he took the promised land. It was where he trained David before David became king. And Mark is giving us all of these different Old Testament associations to tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. We also saw last week in these opening verses of Mark's gospel, verses 1 to 3, that Mark weaves together three different Old Testament quotations. And he does this to demonstrate the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the promised and hoped for anointed one, the Messiah. He is the servant of the Lord that was prophesied by Isaiah. He is the divine messenger of Malachi 3 who comes to purify Israel. Jesus is all of these things, and as we will see today, he is also so much more. So here in our text, verses 4 to 11, we are moving from that prologue, that introduction, into history. We have been given the thesis, the final cause for this book, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and now Mark carries us off into the wilderness to behold the fulfillment of these prophecies. So let's walk through our text together, and I'm going to uh, start with the very beginning of the book, just so we have those uh, verses in mind. So beginning in uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 1, and I'll go through verse 4. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. And then verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So here, Mark identifies John as that voice in the wilderness uh, that we hear about in Isaiah. John is the messenger that Isaiah and Malachi foretold, and he is coming to prepare the way for God. How is this way of the Lord prepared? Well, the first way is by preaching. John is preaching that God is coming. Judgment is coming. We see in other gospels, uh, he says, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, those who do not bear good fruits, keeping with repentance, are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So this is the contents of John's preaching. And then in verse 5, we are given a picture of the people's response. How do they respond to this threat, this promise, this warning? Verse 5 says, And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. This is a mass migration of Jews into the wilderness. 
This is what you would call the baptizing of a nation or a national conversion. Like Jonah, who went to Nineveh, John announces that judgment is on the horizon. It is burning like an oven. And these people who go out to John in the wilderness are the people who want to survive that judgment, who rather than being burned up and destroyed by fire, shall instead be refined and made glorious. Judgment is coming. This much is true. It is coming whether you like it or not. You cannot stop it. The choice is simply yours, whether that day will be a glorious day for you or your destruction. So this is the choice. This is the choice that John sets before the nation. And that is really uh, the same choice before us today. Either we repent of our sins and change the way we are living, or God is going to destroy us. In John's day, the, je- the day of judgment was drawing near. It would be about another 40 years until that fire came in full with the Jewish and Roman war and actually burned Jerusalem to the ground. In our day, uh, we don't really know. We don't know how long God's patience will wait. But what we do know from Scripture is that it is never wise to presume upon his delay. Uh, You meet those people who Uh, You know, they kind of just want to live and do their thing until they get old, and then they think, and then I'll ask Jesus into my heart, right? Uh, Romans 2 says you you should not do that. It says, uh, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We don't know when national judgment will come in full, right? We don't know if all the Chinese are going to invade us with, you know, in parachutes and just take over our nation. Who knows? We don't know what's going to happen. But but if God were to destroy us, if God were to send down fire and brimstone upon every capital in every city, uh, he would be just in doing so. Our nation has rebelled against far more light, against far more truth, and far more gospel than Sodom and Gomorrah ever had. And you can't go to Sodom and Gomorrah anymore. Our nation has consciously rebelled against Christ. It is the religion of Christianity that made the West what it is, what made our nation what it is. And it is this religion of Christianity that we are now consciously seeking to throw off. So make no mistake, God is not mocked. A nation will indeed reap what it sows, and we have sown the wind. So John comes on the scene. He comes on the scene to prepare the way of the Lord, and he calls Israel to repentance. And we see all of Judea and Jerusalem going out to him. They are baptized in the Jordan. They are confessing their sins. And this is how the way of the Lord is prepared. This is how a highway is made straight for God. In verse 6, we are then given a description of what John looks like. Verse 6 says, And John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. This description of John is intended to connect him with the prophet Elijah. 
So 2 Kings 1.8 says of Elijah, he was an hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. This is just one of the many parallels between them as we will see. Also, this eating of locusts and wild honey, every uh, teenager's uh, desired delicacy, is connected to the blessings and curses of the covenant. If Israel disobeyed, Deuteronomy 28 says, Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field, and shalt gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it. All thy trees and fruit of thy land shall the locust consume. So for John to come on the scene, eating locusts and wild honey, is to kind of say two things at once. Number one, it is to say that Israel has broken God's covenant, hence wilderness and locusts. And number two, that John has come to devour the devourer. John has come to prepare the way for the one who will take the curse into himself and destroy it and bring God's people into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Mark wants us to see in John a second coming of Elijah and also a second coming of Moses. Elijah himself was a Moses-like figure. Elijah, like Moses, was a hard man, a man of the wilderness, He confronted evil kings. He called down plagues upon the land. He performed signs and wonders. He called down fire from heaven. And think about the parallel that uh, that Mark is setting up. If John is Elijah and John is Moses, then who is the one that comes after? Who is the one that comes after these men? Well, John is going to continue to drop hints if you don't know. Verses 7 to 8, he says, uh, it says, And John preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. For however impressive and powerful John's ministry was, leading a national revival, he wants there to be no doubt that he is just the forerunner. There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. What is the significance of this reference to the shoes of the one who comes after? Well, let's think about for a moment what the Bible says about the feet, about shoes. Who was, uh, kids, this is the question for you. Who was the first person who was told to take off their shoes in the Bible? Moses. Very good. Moses. And when does this happen? Remember the scene? The burning bush. bush. I thank you for standing. That's a Christ the King Academy kid right there. (laughs) Well done. Yes, at the the burning bush passage, uh, this is a text that all the Jews would have known. God says to him from the burning bush, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Likewise, you see later in Exodus, the priests, when they actually served in the tabernacle or the temple, are told to take off their shoes and wash their feet. They are barefoot when they go into the holy place. So this is what Exodus 30 says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze, with its base also of bronze for washing. So if you don't know what a laver is, it's like this big 
bowl of water, and this is what they're going to fill up and use to wash. And it's going to be between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. And God says, you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. So think about this context of the shoes and the holiness and the ground. And then John comes and he says, he is unworthy to take off Jesus's shoes. This is an enormous claim. He's saying that Jesus is not only the Elisha who comes after in the double portion of the Spirit, who like Elisha performs miracles and raises dead people to life, he is also himself holy ground. Jesus is the God who told Moses to take his shoes off. Jesus is the God who makes the tabernacle and temple holy ground. He sanctifies it. And thus, wherever Jesus goes, wherever Jesus walks, he makes it holy. Jesus has come to cleanse the land of its impurity. Now, that's just part of the connection here. There's also a connection here with feet and the Jordan River, which is where John is baptizing. So remember, after Moses died, God said to Joshua this, Joshua 1.3, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. And then we have this scene a couple chapters later, where the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan River so that the whole nation can cross over into the Promised Land. This is what Joshua 3.13 says, And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon in heap. So this is the imagery that Mark wants us to have when we see John, who's a priest of priestly lineage, baptizing in the Jordan. And then he, he mentions this taking off the shoes of the feet, and then Jesus walks up and stands into the river. What do you expect to happen? This is the crossing of the Jordan all over again. Mark is telling us that Jesus is a new Joshua who leads us into the promised land. Jesus is a new Elisha who takes up Elijah's mantle and separates the waters. Remember what Elisha says? He strikes the water and he says, where is the God of Elijah? Well, here he is. Jesus is the one who sits upon the ark of the covenant that the priests carry, whose throne is in heaven, but has come down for us. Mark is telling you all of this in these verses. If we know our Old Testament and pay attention to these details. In verses 9 to 11, we then have the climax of this scene as Jesus goes into the Jordan. So with all of these different associations running, let's see what happens. Verses 9 to 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. 
And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is baptized. The water is poured upon him. And verse 10 says, And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. So here again, think about the Old Testament. Think about the associations Mark wants to call to mind. And there are at least uh, two crucial scenes that should come to your mind here. The first is Genesis 1 and the creation of the world. Genesis 1-2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the waters. So you have waters, you've got spirit hovering. And then on a day two of creation, this is what God says. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so, and God, and God called the firmament heaven. So in, uh, we don't think this way, but in the biblical cosmology, what separates us down here from where God is up there is this heavenly ocean called the firmament. And when Jesus is baptized, Mark says that those heavenly waters, that heavenly firmament, is torn open. And this is the same word here. In the, in the King James, it just says opened, but it's a much more powerful word. It's this word uh, schizdo. You can think of the word schism or tear. And it also appears at the end of Mark's gospel when Jesus dies on the cross. So heaven is torn open here, and then in Mark 15, it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was, schizdo, torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. The veil in the temple was a symbolic firmament. That is what that big curtain was. It's a symbolic firmament. It was what separated the holy place, which represents heaven, from the rest of the world. And when Jesus is baptized, heaven is split apart, signifying that by his future death, access to God, access to heaven, access to the holy place would be made available to all who are baptized in him. Jesus is the firmament. That is what baptism is. Baptism is water coming on and you passing through the firmament into heaven. This is what baptism signifies. Jesus is the firmament through which we ascend to God. So that's the first kind of image and association you should have. And then the second comes a little bit later in Genesis with the story of Noah and the ark. And here we also have the first mention of a dove. So think about the story of uh, Noah's ark. The waters of the flood have cleansed the old world, and the only dry land, the only safe place is the ark. And when the rain stops falling, the ark comes up out of the waters and rests upon Mount Ararat. And it is from there that Noah sends forth a dove. The first time, the dove returns. It comes back. And it says specifically in Genesis 8-9, uh, it, it returns having found no rest for the sole of her foot. 
The second time Noah sends the dove out, she returns with an olive leaf. And then the third time Noah sends her out and she does not return. Well, here at Jesus' baptism, the dove returns. The spirit who brooded over those primeval waters now descends in the form of a dove upon Christ. Mark is saying that Jesus is the new creation. He is the new land. He is the place where olive trees grow. He is where the birds of the air come and make their nests in his branches. Jesus is Noah's ark. He carries us into the new world. Jesus is all of these things and so much more. So this is just a little bit. (laughs) This is just a little bit of what Mark is trying to give us, and he's going to uh, develop these themes further throughout the book, as we will see. In Jesus of Nazareth, in this man, the entirety of the Old Testament is fulfilled and transformed. And with the climax of this revelation, this uh, anointing, uh, this ordination for ministry that he receives at his baptism, we also have what is perhaps of an even higher mystery that is revealed, and namely the nature of God. What is God like? Well, you know from the Old Testament that he is one. But here we see, here it is revealed to us that God is Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is not until Christ's baptism that we have this explosion of knowledge that was hidden and concealed in the Old Testament. And so here at Christ's baptism, we come to see that uh, when God said in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, uh, he was not talking to the angels. He was not talking to some divine council of cherubim or seraphim. He was talking within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it is fitting. It is fitting that at the moment of Christ's baptism, at his ordination, at the dawn of a new creation, that we see all three persons of the Godhead at once. The Spirit descending like a dove, the Son emerging from the waters, and the Father expressing His paternal love. Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I'll close with this. For all those who are truly baptized into the triune name, Uh, The baptism of Jesus is your baptism. This is why Jesus was baptized in the first place. He was baptized not to be cleansed, but to cleanse the waters. Not to get to heaven, but to tear heaven open for all who are united to him. So if you have not been baptized, uh, what are you waiting for? Christ has torn heaven open for you. So come to him and be washed of your sins. For in Christ, the Father's love flows to you. And in Christ, it is true that you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, on uh, on this Easter morning, we praise you and we thank you for giving us Christ to be all of these things. And God, we confess that uh, we miss a lot of this. Our eyes glaze over when we read some of these texts and we forget just 
um, how deep the riches of your revelation are. And so, God, I ask that you would teach us. I ask that you would instruct us. And I ask that as we come to know and see Jesus more, that you would make us more like him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Every Sunday, every single Sunday, we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the hope of the world, and when that hope is fulfilled, it will arrive like a great festival, with myriads upon myriads of saints glorified and gathered to dine with our God. This morning, we eat in anticipation of that day. We feast, we raise our glasses in hope of that eternal festival that is to come. As Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So here at this table is glory, glory concealed. Bread and wine, humble fare for pilgrims marching towards the festal city. So come and rejoice, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, if you have been baptized, remember what your baptism means. It means that God is pleased with you. It means that God is pleased with you in Jesus Christ, and he will not stop refining you until you look like his beloved son. And if you are not baptized and want to be, uh, come talk to me, come talk to one of the elders. We'd love to uh, begin that process with you. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, and amen. Amen. Go in peace.